This is the Immersive Irony Podcast on Parkscope.net. Subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes. Check out exclusive articles about the theme park industry past, present, and future over on Parkscope.net. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. So this week on the podcast, we have uh, an individual who has been highly successful globally in the theme park industry. His last position was as CEO of Ocean Park in Hong Kong, which was the leading theme park in China for many years. Uh, previously, he worked with Six Flags and Knots. Mr. Tom Merman, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So just to kind of get right into the meat of, of what a lot of people will end up hearing this for, you were, as I mentioned, the CEO of Ocean Park. Uh, you recently stepped down in August of 2016, but Ocean Park was, for quite a while, up until I think 2015, uh, at least according to TEA, the highest attended park in China, which means that you were also defeating Hong Kong Disneyland. When you took the job with Ocean Park in 2004, I know Hong Kong Disney was looking at opening the next year. Obviously, you were aware of that. What were the kind of challenges that you saw coming into that position with Ocean Park? This is going to be probably a long answer. Let's <laughs> see if I That's can fine. do it in an abbreviated fashion. Um, the reality is, is that the park um, was an institution and still is in Hong Kong. People who um, came as kids were bringing their kids. It had a generational connection to the community. And so what I saw was a park that had a connection to the community. It had a unique position in that it was uh, a marine animal-based and land animal park. Not many like that in the world. I think it was one of the first. And um, what I saw was nothing but opportunity. Um, however, um, the market had been through a significant bit of turmoil. Um, first with the Asian financial crisis in 98. Uh, it's when the park actually went from a very high surplus position and went to a lost position. And it had been a long time since they had been there. They had had about 11, I think an 11 year run of kind of, uh, upward trajectory of positive returns, but they lost money in 98. They lost money in 99 and in 2000. And then in 2001, they started to show some signs of recovery, um, but not enough. And they continued in a very tough position starting to show some really good recovery by 2003 and all of a sudden SARS hit. And so you had another downturn where SARS really affected the entire region and really killed tourism. People were obviously afraid to go out. They didn't know what this respiratory disease meant. They, there was no indication of what was causing it. So people were trying to avoid being around other people. And so a theme park really wasn't going to survive under those conditions. And so they found themselves, even though they were really starting to climb out of the hole, they, they found themselves in a slight deficit again that year. So by the time I arrived, um, cash reserves were at a, a low, um, about 100 million Hong Kong. It would have funded about three months of operation. And um, morale was in a tough position because you had an announcement of Disney coming. People thought that was probably where the future was, both the public media were certainly announcing it. And even the staff, I think, had some reservations about whether is, is my future there or do I stay with Ocean Park? 
And so it was a matter of really just looking at, we've got a beautiful location, we've got a beautiful differential product. Um, and I think that was going to be the key to everything I did was focusing on the fact that we're different and that let our difference be our strength. We're not going to have an IP. That's not who we are. We're not going to have a major media conglomerate behind us. Um, we're going to be, as we are, a not-for-profit, wholly owned by the government, public trust park that basically moves forward with a very simple view of, of achieving um, three things, conservation, education, and entertainment, using the assets available to us. But first thing we had to do was generate some cash. And so it was a matter of one, defining a master plan for the future and getting it funded, but secondly, running the park on a daily basis in a way that continued to bring us out of um, our deficit position, grow attendance, and drive revenues through event processes. So for example, Halloween, Christmas, uh, Easter, summer. Uh, we, we basically identified five events and began to leverage those to drive cash, which then put us in a better cash position to take some calculated risks and start doing some minor capital improvements as we define the major renovation of the park. And so it became basically um, a six-year, eight-phase master redevelopment once we defined it and got approval and got financing for it. And um, we just basically put our approach on be different, focus on the differences. Um, Disney is great in every way when it comes to their intellectual property, their their iconic brand and image in the market, but we were different. And we thought, let's use those differences. And we even began to celebrate them as saying the difference is real. Uh, if you want the animated mouse, go to Disney. If you want the real mouse, come to Ocean Park. So, I mean, it was those sort of um, tongue-in-cheek responses we were giving to media, saying, look, there's a place for two parks in this community if they are different if they complement and supplement one another. And we believe we have a real opportunity to stand out. And Disney's arrival was the best thing that could have ever happened for Ocean Park <clears throat> because it allowed us the platform to redefine the park. It allowed us the chance to present to government and to board members and even to our own staff that we had an opportunity to grow and build and deliver the park to a new level at a higher standard and that Disney would basically be the standard by which we'd be measured against. So we had to step up to that level. And so again, I, I thank every day that they arrived because it opened the door for us to do what we did. That's an interesting point that's made here. Obviously ocean park, as you mentioned, is a government owned park and this is kind of a rare situation in the theme park industry, at least as far as it goes to the U S the only park I can think of immediately that kind of falls under this uh, set of guidelines would probably be Hershey in Pennsylvania, where they are a nonprofit organization that sort of has to go to a board of directors and say, here's what we want to do and see if they can get it checked off uh, to actually do any sort of expansion in that park, which makes things very difficult for them. For you guys at Ocean Park, obviously you, you're owned by the government, but there's also a substantial government stake in Disney. Um, first of all, did you feel any tension within the government uh, as far as their support of Disney versus their support of Ocean Park? And secondly, as far as that master redevelopment plan goes, did you have to essentially assemble the whole six years first and go to uh, the Hong Kong government to seek approval? Or was it basically that you had you know, fairly sort of rough uh, concepts or, or fairly 
define concepts of what you want to do, but not necessarily individual vendors, for instance. Okay. Um, I know that's a long question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to your first point, um, yes, uh, the government had ownership in both parks. Uh, in the case of Disney, it was majority ownership, not complete ownership. In the case of Ocean Park, it's complete ownership. I wouldn't say they were conflicted at all. I think the, the Hong Kong government had made a commitment early on that they were going to be putting a focus on a new pillar of economic development, which would be tourism. And they recognized that having two world-class parks was better than having only one world-class park and that letting Ocean Park go away would not be the best um, situation for building this tourism platform. So, I, I, you know, the thing I encountered when I arrived at Ocean Park was a motivated government, a motivated board, and a motivated staff to do something. I had a chairman who had just been appointed in 2003 who was quite dynamic in his own right, uh, an entrepreneur in the community, an icon in the community, known to be a bit of a rebel and, and to be entrepreneurial in his views. And uh, I think that's what the park needed. They needed somebody who could actually, you know, move things forward and not get stuck in bureaucracy. And um, so basically, no, I'd say the government was very supportive. I think, um, you know, like anything, it, you, you've heard the term before, everyone's created equal, some are more equal than others. There are certainly times we sat back and thought, gee, it'd be nice if we got the same support Disney did. But I think at times you just become so reflective and introspective that you miss the fact that there are other, there are other ways in which we were being supported. And, you know, as I look at it today, there's a rail system that comes directly to our front door. Um, the government has underwritten, guaranteed, or provided the loans um, for everything we have done. Uh, and, and those are great levels of support. Um, and, and again, I think we have taken the approach that we're never going to be a burden to the taxpayers of Hong Kong. Therefore, whatever we do get from government, we want to make sure is paid back uh, with interest. Um, and I, that is a huge difference with Disney because Disney has been given uh, as a as a process of their relationship, uh, infrastructure and other things, you know, kind of in the mix of the investment. So again, it's, it's not really something you can line up side by side and look at point for point and say, is this equal? Is it right? But we didn't want to get bogged down in that anyway. The, the point is, is we had a, a, a program, we had a view, we had a, a set of circumstances that were different than Disney being not for profit. Uh, being in the community for 30, almost 30 years at that point, and we just had to focus on a different business model, uh, especially since, again, we are not traded publicly. We're a single park. So, again, all that said, I'd say government was very even-handed in everything they did, and I think it was it was a good platform for us. Um, on the other side of it, as far as the redevelopment plan goes, um, yeah, we had to essentially create the entire master concept master plan, um, price it, um, lay it out um, at least in a, in a detailed enough framework to where you could get decent pricing on it and you could put timing behind it. Um, we knew that going into it, we were gonna have to continue refining it, but we thought we could at least get a target price, we could get a target time frame, and that would be enough for us then to build models against it, do the economic feasibility studies. And what we went to our board with um, was that approach. We had a separate subcommittee within the board to review it. That subcommittee, once they approved it, it then went to the board. Once the board approved it, it then went to government. Um, once the government approved it, then it went to the legislative council for review and approval and for the financing support. And um, so we had to take a fairly detailed plan with us, but we had not tendered it yet. We had not, um, we had not secured the contractors that was yet to follow. 
uh, and we were still to break that down into how many phases. I think the initial approach was we thought we could do it in two phases, but we decided to do it over um, eight phases in six years. And we thought that would give us better marketing potential. It would give us more time to kind of continue to introduce new product in the market over a longer period, keep us fresh, keep us relevant, and it would be less disruptive to the overall park and the development sequence. When you entered the theme park industry, you entered it working for Knott's Berry Farm, and, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, so obviously you grew up uh, in the industry essentially looking at Disney uh, just down the street as, as you know, either a competitor or as a complementary piece, however you want to, you know, put them in that position in Anaheim towards Knott's. Um, did you think when you had the opportunity to go to Ocean Park that you would be in a position of, say, getting 7 million people in attendance and beating them in attendance on an annual basis? No. You know, I think when I had been hired, um, in fact, in my interview process with the board, one of the discussion points was that the board was considering closing the park, redeveloping it, and reopening it. And one of my key points to them was, whatever you do, don't close. You can redevelop while you're open. You can do it in sections. But if you go off the radar and give Disney a chance to enter the market, you'll never get back on the radar. And I said, so stay open, stay operating, whether you hire me or not. Whoever you put in this role, make sure you continue to operate. And just look at how you responsibly go about redeveloping the park. Um, that was key to me in terms of just staying on the radar. Um, but we always thought we would be you know, in a number two position. We just figured they're coming in with marketing power, intellectual properties that are known around the world, uh, an operating model that is very good, and really you know, a product that is good in every level. People love it. Um, if they don't love it, they fall in love with it. If they don't even know about it, they get to know it very quickly based on the the marketing skill of the company and their pervasive presence. So we just thought, that's fine. We're going to be in a very comfortable number two position. Tourism will go up and, and we'll reap benefits of that as well. And I think what occurred was a bit of a surprise in that um, they had a rough start. They, they opened um, a little bit, uh, well, how would I put it? They, they took a lot of abuse from the, from the market from the guests and from others who felt the park was too small, who felt that they were overfilling the park. So the experience was not a positive, uh, wait times were too long, food was too expensive. So there was a number of things happening that were creating a bit of a backlash. And what ended up happening was people were saying, well, I'm going to go back to my favorite park. I'm going to go back to ocean park. That's, you know, that, that park's never disappointed me. And it was one of these things where, we didn't plan on it. We didn't set out for this to occur, but when it did occur, it put us in a position of strength and that the local market were responding immediately. And then as the negative news hit the international market, people were thinking, well, I want to go to Hong Kong, but I'm not hearing good things about that park. Let's go to the other park. And the other park happened to be us. So I think we reap the benefit of being in a market, um, being present, being known, and being an alternative to something that was still kind of going through some teething issues. And I think Disney was struggling a little bit with their PR responses. Most things were having to come back to the U.S. to be reviewed. But with a 16-hour time difference, it was being very difficult because the media wanted answers now. And if they weren't getting them, they would just create their answers or they would fill in the blanks on their own until more information came from Disney. So they were going through a bit of a rough run for about those first two years. So what happened was the first year ends and we did better than them. And we kind of chalked it up as a fluke that, you know, that that's it's an anomaly 
they're, they're going to spend more money than we can ever spend. They outspend us 10 to 1 in marketing, if not more. Um, they're going to, no company does it better than Disney in terms of fixing issues that occur in the market and getting their product right. So we just figured, okay, that's an anomaly. But then along comes 2006, we beat them again. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So I think after year two, we realized, hey, this isn't a fluke. Um, we have set out, out a course. We've created a differential product. We've made it world-class. We're standing out in the industry. Um, and we took what was set up as a set of aspirations at the beginning, and we kind of converted those to expectations as we began to you know, say, we, we hope to do this, but hope became basically an expectation. We started writing our KPIs differently. We started realizing we're in a position where we can continue to be the leader. Let's continue to drive that position. Um, and it was important for us that we realize our differential values actually made us a stronger attraction, especially for the Chinese market who were looking for something potentially less pricey, as well as something that had some redeeming value because we have a strong education and conservation package. So, you know, when I came in, my main approach, no, no different than what I did at Knott's Berry Farm or Six Flags, um, I, I applied what I call 10 principles to how I tr manage and transform a business. And the first thing is you have to understand. And so we took the time or I took the time to understand what are the issues, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, and how do we go about setting up, uh, addressing each one of those and taking advantage. And so it became basically right out of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You need to seek first to understand and then be understood. That's exactly what I did. Understand. Then I moved to the next uh, principle of valuing and basically valuing uh, what we offer and understand that we had differential values, we had generational values, we had things that we could tap into that were going to be strengths for us. Next thing was to measure. I realized we had a real deficient capacity uh, in the park. We had a 36,000 instantaneous capacity, but we could only entertain really about 15,000 comfortably because we were only offering 35,000 entertainment units per hour. So that metric that I was looking at was I wanted to offer two attractions per guest per hour during peak hours. We were, we were offering less than one. So wait times were longer than they should have been. So we began putting metrics in place and measuring, as I have always done wherever I've gone, to make sure that I'm giving a really considered approach to the guest experience and that we're then measuring everything. And so we put measure in place. The next thing was to plan. And I've always said you have to anticipate, communicate, and execute, and that comes through good planning. The next thing was we had to be relevant, culturally relevant to the markets we serve. And I felt that we had a really great position. It comes back to this uh, value and understand principle is that I said to everybody, listen, Disney is America, and they're bringing you America. We're Hong Kong. Anyone coming to Hong Kong wants a Hong Kong experience. So let's make sure we focus on everything about our park that is relative to Hong Kong, from the food to the experiences all the way through. And so I said, let's be culturally relevant to the markets we serve. It'll be our difference and it'll be our value at the end of the day. The next thing was to control the controllable and keep things in perspective. Uh, the next one was to lead, actually lead the organization. The next one was to be slightly disruptive, disruptive by nature. We had to do things with low budgets, uh, no money, uh, and we had to find ways to make an, uh, a mark in the market. And so we found ways to creatively communicate what we were doing and, and do it effectively. 
and, and really cost efficiently. And the things we introduced were at fractions of the price of what other people in the industry are doing it. And we were disruptive in what we did and that we kind of got the market looking at us. We got people coming to see what we were doing and it, it helped grow the attendance. The next thing, the next principle that I've always applied is, you know, a lot of companies are generous in what they do back to their communities, but I felt we had to be genuine as well. So I said we had to be genuine and generous. And I think that was one of the key qualities of Ocean Park is we were genuine and people saw us as genuine. And so we could make that a differential point relative to Disney or others in that, you know, they're, they're seen as very commercial worldwide. Uh, we were seen as local not-for-profit and we gave back to the community. So we had to keep building upon that. And the last principle was you have to aspire first and then expect results. And that's exactly what we did. So we just, we kind of followed those 10 principles to, to manage the business and then transform it into a, a successful, well-positioned winner in the market and in the region. I'm going to go back just a little bit in terms of your professional history in the industry. You began a long, long time ago at this stage as a sweep at Knott's Berry Farm. Um, one thing I noted is that when you left the when you left Ocean Park recently, uh, you promoted, I believe it was Matthias Lee Singchung is the individual that's replaced you as the CEO. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, Matthias Lee. Uh, now, just looking at the last name, my first inclination is that, that the company went with somebody that was more or less sort of a Hong Kong or, or Chinese local. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yes, and that was... Uh, there was an intention to that as well, because yeah. the park had never had a local leader over the uh, 40 years that it had been running. Yeah, this is something that I thought was kind of interesting, because my experience in terms of what I've seen in foreign parks, especially if I look at the Middle East, is that there's a lot of expatriates that end up operating the theme parks. Um, mm -hmm. As somebody that began as a sweep uh, in a U.S. regional theme park, um, do you see that, that there is a need in the Asian market to have individuals who are brought up in that sort of meritocracy uh, that maybe isn't being done right now or that it has been done poorly up to this point? Um, you know what I've discovered, and I don't think it's unique to China. Um, the U.S. has a long history of you know, theme parks, and we have a long history with our middle class. Um, and, and, you know, when a middle class gets large enough, they start looking for things to do with their discretionary time and money. China is really an emerging market in many respects in terms of their middle class. And what's happening is you're going from, I think, 300 million people in the middle class to over 600 million by the year 2020. And so you're seeing this incredible boom of theme park development because everyone realizes their community, their city, their region needs a theme park because it, it's, one, a cultural offering. So it ticks a box in the Chinese community for being something that's a diversionary experience for the community. But it also has become a bit of a land um, a land issue for them. And that if uh, somebody, I'm going to really simplify this, but, but if somebody were to say, go to the government and say, um, I've got an idea for a cultural offering and the government says, okay, great. We have land available for cultural offerings. How much land do you need? Well, I need, let's just say, for example, 10,000 hectares. Okay. What are you going to do? How big is your cultural offering going to be? Well, it's going to be a hundred hectares. Okay. What are you doing with the other 9,900? Oh, I'm going to develop residential and commercial and other things. And it became, it has become a bit of a, of a land grab. 
scenario where people found a loophole. If I go in with a cultural offering, I can get a whole bunch of land at low price or no price, and the, the government gets something in that community that they don't currently have. And there's been such an incredible, um, how would I put it, uh, an incredible surge of development and, and focus on these theme parks that I think today China has more um, theme parks per capita than even the U.S., but 70% um, of them are failing, 20% are breaking even, and 10% are making money. Um, one of the biggest issues around it is um, you've got a lack of software, the actual knowledge um, of how do you do this? How do you set it up? How do you, you know, so a lot of times what's happening is, is the buyers from China are going out and just, you know, they're going to an IAPA show and they're just buying everything on the shelf and saying, okay, I just want a theme park, and they're buying the services of a master planning group, but they haven't even begun with the question of why. Why are we doing this? Do we have the infrastructure to support it? Can we, you know, do we have the people, the discretionary income and time to support this? Are we setting ourselves up to grow our own staff and grow our own people? And I think what we've found is, as always, software drives hardware. They can buy the best hardware in the world, but they don't have the know-how, they don't have the experience, then it's going to fail. And those that are probably doing the best in China have a degree of international leadership because they brought in the software, they brought in the knowledge of what it takes to run a park. And I think they're going through a cycle and they're growing, they're developing, they're building at a great rate. I'm finding more and more often there's more people within China who have greater knowledge. They've gone to the States, they've gone to Europe, they've gotten to know better about the industry. They've gotten to know better about the metrics that drive the business. They've gotten to know that you have to make um, uh, continuous capital investments because that was a very tough thing for a lot of the Chinese investors to grab is that this is a capital intensive business and you have to continually renew and refresh or your product will get old very fast. And I think that was a hard proposition because many times the investment mentality in China is you invest once, you get your investment out of it, and then you move on to something else. And, and so again, I think a lot of it has been a huge learning curve, but it's happening at a very fast rate. And it's really getting people, it's getting the software in, it's getting the knowledge base in to um, help guide. And I think what you'll find is in a lot of cases that, that Western-based knowledge is being replaced by local talent slowly but surely. And I think it's, it's inevitable that uh, China will at some point in time be able to not have to use international talent uh, just like a lot, even the Middle East right now is still using a lot of international talent to to open all their facilities. But I think you'll find in time um, there'll be a local base that continues to grow and evolve that can then take on those roles. And I think Ocean Park, for whatever reason, had you know started under the Jockey Club investment, used Jockey Club employees to run it. In uh, 1987, uh, it just kind of handed over to the government. And then it evolved from there into another international leader, into another one and another one. And uh, one of my goals when I got the position was that whatever day I ended up leaving the role, I wanted to make sure I left with somebody local in that role. Because it would have been a failing in my part, I felt that if I couldn't have prepared somebody local to be in that role, that I would just perpetuate the cycle of putting you know, another international person in the role. And, 
you know, Hong Kong's unique. It's an international place. It's got an incredible dynamism of, of international influences. And so, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon to have another international person in that role, but I just felt we needed, we needed a local in the role and we needed to, you know, make sure that we're continuing to build and grow the succession plan at the park such that, you know, if you go international, it's only because we just didn't have a local person who could fill that role. Um, and, and so again, the, that park is deeper and deeper every day in terms of its knowledge base and skill sets. There, there are many directions to go <laughs> with that answer. Uh, <laughs> I guess the first one I'll go with is, is in relation to your time with Six Flags. Uh, you did work at what is now Six Flags Discovery Kingdom. It was Marine World when you first started there. And then you went to Warner Brother, uh, Warner Brothers World in Madrid uh, back when Six Flags was managing it. Um, at the time that you were with Six Flags, uh, I know that Gary Story, who's a Six Flags, essentially a lifer, uh, was the CEO at the time, I believe. But, but essentially, Premier Parks was owned by and operated in, in some sense by real estate people. Uh, I believe it may have been the Gellert family. Um, do you see any sort of parallels between the way Six Flags was operated because they were obviously operated with the intent of, of explosive growth in the late 90s and up to about 2003 or so versus the way some of the Chinese parks uh, like you know OCT or Chimalong just as examples of, of large uh, theme park companies or Wanda Group being another one uh, that have burst forth and built tons of parks. Do you see any parallels between the way those two are currently one's past trajectory and one's current future trajectory? Hmm. Um, no, not really. I, you know, cause I think if you think about it, um, Kieran Burke was running the property company. I think when he and Gary got to know each other, when Gary was running the Oklahoma city park. Mm-hmm. And I think that they realized that, um, they liked one another. They, they, they basically saw commonality in each other. I think Kieran got an appreciation for the theme park business. Gary obviously was a lot like me in that he grew up in the industry. It's, it's what he knew. He knew it in his soul. He knew it in his heart. And I think that he and Kieran formed a great relationship with Kieran being somewhat the kind of New York money and business person and, and Gary being the park person. And I think what they realized was together they could forge an incredible team. And so it, it kind of began the process of them then acquiring a, another park here in Maryland, you know, in Largo, another park here. And then, then it was kind of the, the guppy swallowing the whale when they went after Six Flags. Because I think they initially went after Texas only. Um, that park had a different ownership and they weren't able to buy it because it, it wasn't in, in the scheme of things. I think it had like five or six or, or a number of owners. They didn't all want to sell. And so what ended up happening was I think Gary and Kieran went back, regrouped, and then bought the whole company. And it kind of shocked the industry. And, and it showed the power of having a guy like Gary who knows the industry and a guy like Kieran who knows the financial markets and knows the, the people who are out there to go to for getting the financing. And I think they just formed an incredible team, but they were 100% focused on theme parks. Um, and, and it wasn't about property or anything else at that stage for them. They, they saw opportunity to generate cash. They saw an opportunity to generate value. They obviously were traded publicly, so they had a responsibility to their shareholders and to um, the employees. I, I think when you look at the, the Wandas and all these, there, there's bigger plays in, in motion. Uh, you know, usually it's a property play first, a theme park second. 
Chimlong might be the only exception where Mr. Sue at Chimlong, I think, has taken the approach that you know he started as a roadside butcher. He opened up a little attraction in Panyu in Guangzhou, China, and it became successful. And then he kind of parlayed that into a bigger development, a bigger development. And I, I'd say Mr. Sue probably is the closest example um, to probably those early stages of American theme park development where you had somebody who was a bit of a visionary and he kind of built it into something that became an international destination. Um, but no, Gary and Kieran, I think, just formed a unique team. Gary had a great intuition for the industry. Um, and I think uh, Kieran had a great intuition for um, leadership management and, and also acquiring the financial support necessary to you know, make things happen. So um, I, I'd, I'd see it as actually quite different because they were operating in a mature market and you've got, um, you know, China's a very immature market at this stage and uh, it's a bit of the wild west in some regards in terms of how people get money and how people get land and, and begin to develop. Whereas Gary and Kieran were actually taking over existing properties. With regards back to the Chinese market, we have a large number of, of huge theme parks um, I know that the Sanchen for performance parks are doing quite well. We mentioned Wanda, Chimalong, OCT. Uh, there's a number of other players in that market. Uh, it, it, trying to explain the Chinese market, uh, you know, from the outside, it basically looks like you have a, a lot of, you know, fairly new parks built within the last 10 to 15 years. And then there's also several hundred smaller parks that are centered in cities. Um, are these, what kind of state, involvement is there in the larger companies and, and for instance, the smaller parks as well? And also, is there any involvement from the Chinese state in the mainland-based manufacturers? Because there's a large number of ride manufacturers now based in China. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I can give you absolutely accurate breakdowns of where government's involved or not involved, but I mean, in a centralized government framework such as China, um, state-owned enterprises are basically um, kind of the rule, not, not the exception. So the exception would be those independently run places. Chimlong might be one of the few that is independently run. Um, I, I think many of the rest, OCT, um, let me think about this for a second, OCT, um, even Song Chen, I, I think a lot of them all have state-owned enterprise links back to either parent companies or back to uh, the leadership in those companies. Um, you know, even if you look at Disney, Disney is supported by Shin Di, who's the majority shareholder, which is a state-owned enterprise uh, and looked after by government. Um, even if you look at, you know, Hong Kong Disney, the government has a majority shareholding in it. Um, so again, and the other, I think, big thing about China that I hear a lot is I think the, the normal Western perception of China is that it's all the same. Uh, it, it's just one, one big homogenous market. And the reality is that you, couldn't, you couldn't imagine more diversity anywhere in the world than what you'd find in China from region to region, province to province, city to city, you know, from the cultural um, nuances to the language differences, the dialect differences, uh, you know, the history, 
And so I think one of the biggest mistakes always made from a Western perspective is it's all the same and that there actually are differences in what people like. The foods are different, absolutely, completely different from region to region, area to area that you go to. And and I think the one thing anyone coming into the market has to realize is these are very different markets, no different than traveling across the U.S. What you find in the south to the north and the east and the west are going to be differences that you have to kind of develop to, build to, and operate to. And again, I think what gives some of these, uh, well, what gives the Chinese operator the advantage is they understand those cultural nuances. Um, and I think that's where you have to be very sensitive when you come in as an international into those markets is take the time to understand what you're dealing with and, and then build from there. With regards to how new this industry is within China, I know that one thing that I, I always found kind of interesting about the way the Chinese parks seem to operate that differs from the fully matured markets in the U.S. and, and Europe. You know, here in the United States, ch uh, a chain like Cedar Fair or Six Flags, they utilize season passes quite heavily in order to bring people into the park on a repeat basis and also to, to visit other parks as well. Um, you know, Cedar Fair or Six Flags. Generally, if you buy a season pass at one, it's good at all the at all of their facilities. That's not necessarily the case in China. Do you see there being a move with the major Chinese operators to do something more along those lines? I don't see a move, but I but I see there may be opportunity as the market continues to evolve and develop and grow. Um, I think at the moment, a lot of them operate independently. A lot of them operate as kind of separate business units. And I don't think they necessarily have looked for or are looking for the synergies because the domestic travel from one market to another may not be the same as it is in the U.S., but that's changing. I mean, domestic travel in China is becoming one of the in fact, I think this next year, uh, domestic travel in China will outstrip the rest of the world in terms of its economic value if it hasn't already. And as infrastructure is put in place, roads and rail and, and airplanes and people are getting more discretionary time and money, I think you're going to see more people moving from one OCT park, say from, from Shanghai to Beijing to uh, Chengdu or Wuhan and, and even into Shenzhen. And I think you'll start seeing that they'll start realizing, hey, there's some synergies here. You buy a pass here, you can use it elsewhere. But right now, I don't think that's been the focus for them. And I don't think anyone's been advising that either um, because they each kind of operate as independent units. Recognizing revenue from one entity to another, I think, is a little different in China also. Uh, you know, Every province, every city has different ways of uh, employing people, um, has different ways of uh, recognizing revenues uh, or moving revenue from one area to another. So those, those all become, you know, interesting kind of business and tax questions that need to be reviewed within the country as well. For you at Ocean Park, speaking again of the, of the specific Chinese sort of theme park companies, Chimelong built Ocean Kingdom uh, not too long ago, uh, which has now become, I believe, the, the leading park in China. Well, it was until, of course, Disneyland Shanghai opened earlier this year. Um, does Ocean Park see them as a significant competitor? I know that you know typically you can arrive to Macau by ferry and then take a, a bus or vehicle over uh, to the area where where Ocean Kingdom's at. Or for that matter, does it look at the OCT parks like Window of the World as being significant competition at this stage? No, not really. You know, we we've always looked at <clears throat> our position as being an attraction within Hong Kong. As long as Hong Kong remains relevant, we remain relevant. Um, and, and so I think our push normally is to the Hong Kong government, just encouraging them to continue to remain fresh and focused and different. 
Um, and, and again, we don't really see those parks as hurting because if anything, they're creating critical mass. You know, no different than Central Florida, no different than Southern California becomes a destination for theme park visitation. Um, the more parks there are, as long as there's differences between them, we think the more opportunity there is to create more traffic, more destination travel. So we haven't really seen that as an issue. Um, even in the case of Chimlong, you know, Chimlong is, um, well, while it's an animal-based marine animal park as well as land animal park, their approach to uh, animal acquisition, animal care, education, conservation are completely different from ours. And uh, we have a much higher um, standard that we're working to because you know we have a different market, a different sophistication in our market of what the people expect and what the people want and what we want of ourselves. And so, again, we're, we're holding ourselves to the AZA standard because we're accredited by them. Um, how we acquire, how we care for, how we, you know, take care of that animal for its entire life is, is a different approach than what you'll see in China generally and at Chimlong specifically. Um, and again, I think as awareness around the world builds and we're seeing it in the States, we're seeing it in other parts of Europe, um, when we see this awareness continue to build on the keeping of animals, the care of animals, I think China is going to find themselves in a position where they're going to have to change their approach. And I think it's going to come faster rather than slower. Uh, and it's going to happen real quickly as the Internet continues to be such a great form of communication and people are sharing everything on WeChat and every every form of chat room in China. You know, things are getting shared. People are sharing opinions. People are talking. And so again we're we're different we're held to different standards both by the public and by ourselves and we think we stand out as being you know uh, i'll just say we we stand out as being different i think in a good way relative to our conservation education values that are applied within the park and what the guests leave with every day so we we think our guests come and get redeeming value from our park and not just pure entertainment We've just mentioned Chimalong uh, or Chimalong Ocean Kingdom, and they do have recently opened an orca exhibit. Uh, it was a pretty poorly kept secret, I think. Uh, I, I was aware of it a couple of years ago, and I'm sure you were aware of it long before that, uh, that they had acquired orca whales from Russia uh, that were recently caught, I believe in 2012 or 2013. Has that actually become a talking point within Hong Kong or in mainland China? <coughs> Um, they, I don't believe they've opened it yet. Um, I think everyone knows that they've been acquiring, they've got them in holding pools. I think they're still preparing the park for their debut. Um, so, so you are right. It's a fairly poorly kept secret. Um, you know, <laughs> there, there's so many issues that could be gone into when it comes to animal care, animal acquisition, animal presentation. Um, what I can speak to is that at Ocean Park, we took a position years ago, years and years ago. I mean, we're, we're the first facility, I think, in Hong Kong to ban shark fin soup because we recognize it was detrimental to the population in the wild and that we shouldn't be doing that if we're a conservation and education-based organization. And so we took it off our menus and it was much to... Um, you know, it was much to the concern of people who were local who didn't understand the international implications because all they knew was it was going to affect their bottom line. It was a traditional dish to have at weddings. We did weddings at the park. It was a traditional uh, soup dish to have at banquets. We did a lot of banquets, but we, we gave up the revenue on principle because that was where we felt we should be as a company. You know, and on top of that, how we acquire animals. We, we believe that you acquire first and foremost from uh, existing uh 
human care stock that is out in the world. If someone has surplus, you work out a, an arrangement for trade or transfer. If that's not available, then you look for rescue opportunities uh, because there are in case, cases of strandings and other animals out there where you can acquire. Um, if if stranding uh, strandings aren't occurring, rescue is not available, um, the last thing you would do is go to the wild. And our belief is, is if you go to the wild, it has to be supported by good research, population research. And so, again, our feeling is you work with governments, you work with scientific community, and you begin a multi-year conservation effort of measuring population, making sure the scientific research is peer-reviewed so that once the research is brought in and you're actually able to draw conclusions from it, that you're then getting peer-reviewed scientific um, corroboration of the data that uh, in fact a population is large enough to sustain a take and that take can be defined in a certain number and then it's approved by governments, import and export permits are, are done, it's all done according to CITES, which is the International uh, Trade of Endangered Species. Um, all these things have to be played out. You know, We even went to IUCN for our population assessment surveys, which is the uh, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, and it's a group who typically speaks out against uh, animal facilities because um, they they want to see all animals in the wild. And we actually went to the IUCN, probably a great risk of being shut down, but they actually applauded our research, they applauded our efforts, and said this is the way it should be done. So, you know, again, we've been very different all along the way in terms of what we do. Even our animal presentations are done uh, only demonstrating natural behaviors. They're not jumping through hoops, through fire, balancing balls, um, only natural behaviors. And then on a big screen uh, presentation behind the, uh, the stadium, uh, we actually have images of animals in the wild doing the same behavior the animal's doing in our particular pool. And then on top of that, every story of presentation is done with an educational angle to it. So in the case of our dolphin presentation, we talk about reducing and eliminating plastic debris in the ocean. And so the guests can take away a message that they shouldn't be consuming through plastic, discarding plastic improperly. They should be thinking of all the, you know, the three R's in terms of what they do. But we link it back to the animals and their plight in the wild and what you can do to make a difference for them in the wild. So we've gone a whole different route than probably every other park out there. Uh, and I think only now I'm hearing the SeaWorlds and others are starting to do it. But we've been doing this for years. We introduced that concept back in 2007 that we wanted to change the way we present animals and that they they should be ambassadors for the animals in the wild and they should be able to help us deliver messages to make people change behavior and build belief and create an emotional bond with them so that they'll think differently about their own behaviors at home. Uh, so. Again, a long answer to your question, <laughs> but uh, we, we've tried to take a higher level role understanding these animals are under our care for life and we have to care for them for their life and we have to be able to deliver messages of conservation education. We've got a ripe market for that. You know, China is ripe because they're, the middle class is booming. They're getting out in the world now. They don't understand everything. They don't. They haven't seen everything that maybe some of the rest of the world has seen. And so we're able to, you know, use that audience and deliver messages they wouldn't otherwise get anywhere else in their life, especially when they're seeing animals they may never see other, otherwise ever in their life unless they're under these conditions. We're going to go back again uh, sort of to your past history and, and your, the way you came up in the industry here. Um, began in Knott's, I believe, in the 70s. Is that correct? Yes, I started in 77. Um, 
when you entered, when you became a sweep, essentially, were you just essentially looking to make money or was there a real interest that you had in the industry already? <laughs> no, uh, the, the irony of this is I actually went down the street and applied at Disneyland first. I felt that was where I really wanted to work. And I was under the age of 18 and Disney was not hiring minors. And so basically I filled out the application, did everything. They had the screener come out and tell me, I'm sorry, uh, we're only hiring adults. So we, we really can't uh, place you. And they said, and even if you were 18, you need a haircut. We wouldn't hire you with your hair the length it is. <laughs> now, when I tell that story, uh, people think, oh my God, he must have had really long hair. It was the seventies and all. The reality was it was just over my ears and it was touching my collar. But if, if you remember the old Disney standard, um, that, that was a no-no. It had to be over the ears. I mean, it had to be up above the ears and it had to be off the collar. I want to say they just changed that. So, it wasn't even that recent. Uh, that that yeah, changed. possibly. So I went down the street to, to Knott's. Knott's just happened to be a couple miles from my home anyway because I grew up in Buena Park. And I applied for sweeper. Uh, and, and the only reason I did that is I have an older brother who started as a sweeper at Japanese Deer Park when that was still operating in Buena Park. And uh, then he went over to Disney and it began, I think he was a Main Street uh, vehicle operator and a, worked in parking. But I, I just thought, well, it's an easy job. They're flexible with school schedules and, and I just need to make money. So to answer your initial question, I just needed to make money. <laughs> I was uh, a senior in high school at that time. I was going to be graduating. I wanted to make enough money to cover my car insurance, my gas and, and buy books for uh, school. And so that was really the motivation. And I was intending to leave after the summer and I'd find another job later. And what happened at the end of the summer is I was asked if I wanted to shift to part-time that uh, they would work around my schedule. I thought, well, sure, I'm commuting to school anyway, so what the heck, I'll, I can do that. And so I stayed on part-time. Part-time became full-time, and one opportunity led to another. And then I realized probably, it was probably seven years in, after I'd graduated from college and after I had my degree and I started looking at uh, postgraduate work, that I realized there's, a, there's an opportunity here. There's a career here. And more opportunities began to present themselves. I had people really great bosses who believed in me and saw potential in me who gave me opportunity because they, they thought I could stretch and do something I'd never done before. And I think that's always the, the great thing about our industry is that, um, you know, it, every park is a city in, the, in and of itself. Every job you can imagine in the world is represented in a park. And, you know, again, given the right opportunities and the right uh, leadership philosophies, you can actually do most of those jobs if you show the interest and the the motivation. And that, I guess that's what I had. I had interest in motivation and I, I demonstrated that I wanted to do more. And uh, so the opportunities were there and, and I, I took advantage of them. While you were certainly young at the time, uh, <clears throat> and I did a decent amount of research before the interview. One thing that I came across, which I was not aware of, is that there was an attempt to unionize the Knotts uh, employee base in 82. Do you have any recollection of that? Oh, yeah, very much, very much. In fact, I was a supervisor at that time, and uh, I, I had to play a key role in terms of, you know, the communication with the staff and uh, the, the whole balancing of uh, what led to this attempt to unionize and, and what was the family position on unionization. And, and the family had just converted. It was, I think, it was probably within that year that the family had converted from um, being completely family run to bringing in Terry Van Gorder, and Terry brought in an entire staff to you know, begun managing the park because at one time the family basically divided the park up and they each took roles in running their various divisions. And so Terry was building an entire management team so the family could step away and basically let a, a, a management team run it for them. 
So yeah, it was a very dynamic time. It was a it was a time where Marion Mott took a very active role in the company, and she actually came forward because so many people had worked with her, knew of her. Marion had led a lot of the development in the early seventies. Uh, was a very present, very committed owner, and, and very emotional. I mean, she was you know the, the park was hers. It was her family's, and she she was able to really appeal to everybody of you know the importance of remaining. Uh, union free, working through management and supervision, not putting a third party between them, um, that uh, if there are issues, we'll address them. If we need to do things differently, we'll do that. And I, I think her appeal more than anything really got people realizing I, I came here and I stayed here because it's a family organization. I don't want to change that dynamic. And, and so I think, uh, yeah, it was a very memorable time I, being a brand new supervisor and understanding everything about collective bargaining and uh, representation and at what level. <clears throat> what level you cut the line for who's going to be in the bargaining unit and who's outside that bargaining unit. And, um, and, and just learning about the national labor relations act, things I had no clue of previously and what the rules of engagement were, what you can and can't say. So it, it was a formative time for everybody. I think you ascended the ladder and ended up essentially running. And I guess you were involved in some degree of development for Knott's camp Snoopy, uh, what's now Nickelodeon universe at mall of America. How did you end up being the person that was sort of picked for that mission? Uh, and uh, why did you willingly determine that you would move from Buena Park, California, where it's nice and warm, to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where it's generally frigid cold for about six months of the year? <laughs> um, I'm going to have to stand up for Minnesota. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful state. And, I actually don't. Uh, I didn't know. What can I say here? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in a similar boat. I didn't boat know that. <laughs> I didn't know it when I said yes. Uh, I, I was California born and raised, and uh, that's what I knew. But um, no, you know, Terry Van Gorder, the the chief executive of Ocean, of, um, of Knott's Berry Farm, uh, Terry had a very dramatic flair about him in terms of how he presented things. And I remember there was a, a time um, we had a, we had these all management meetings where there'd be a briefing. I think it was on a quarterly basis, and we'd give a financial update, we'd give a marketing update, we'd kind of give an outline of what's coming up in the next quarter or, or the next uh, three quarters, and it was a way to keep everybody kind of focused on the same same issues, same direction. And Terry would usually end those meetings, kind of a wrap up, but he always did it in somewhat of a dramatic flair. And I remember one year <clears throat> um, he had come to the meeting. And I think he had a flag in his hand, and it was very symbolic, very dramatic. Terry had a Terry had a, a very strong military background, but he also had a degree in philosophy, and he was also, I think, a landscape architect. So he had this kind of really eclectic uh, blending of uh, upbringings and background. I think he grew up on the Stanford golf course and designed a golf course himself in Valencia. So he had this very unique background, and. So he came to the meeting every time with a dramatic message for everybody, and he always had a way of linking world events to our little park because a lot of us just thought of our park being a little business in the, in the center of the Southland of Orange County, you know, in Buena Park. And Terry had a way of showing us that what happened in you know some other part of the world still had an impact on us, and it, it was really great. And so he came to the meeting. I think he had a flag in his hand, but nobody recognized the flag. But the whole point was he and the family had negotiated a deal with the Simon uh, organization, uh, Melvin Simon and Associates, for the mall development. They were based out of Indianapolis at the time. And they had formed an agreement to uh, put a theme park in the middle of a mall in Bloomington, Minnesota, called Mall of America. 
And Terry came to the meeting to announce the fact that this agreement had been reached. And he had, the flag was meant to represent we're going to plant the Knots flag in Minnesota. And um, he had linked it to Charles Schultz because Schultz came from the St. Paul area. And we, we had Camp Snoopy at that point in time. So we had the Snoopy characters, the Peanuts gang, as part of our uh, our intellectual property. Um, and, and so it all kind of fit. It was a homecoming for the Schultz, for Schultz and for Snoopy. And it was um, a bit of a return to the Midwest, if you will, for the Knott family, whose origins were from there as well. So the opportunity was plant the flag, create this dramatic setting. And, and the message was, we're going to Minnesota. Who's coming with us? or who's coming with me. And I thought I better get up and run to the front of the room uh, because everyone's going to be going. And I kind of, you know, <laughs> raised my hand and ran to the front. I realized, you know, other than the tumbleweeds and crickets and what have you, the, the normal comedy backdrop, I was the only one who showed an interest. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I just always found that um, you need to, you need to show an interest in, in your own career development, your own growth. You need to be willing to take risks. Uh, certainly they could be calculated risks, but, um, you know, the, the old adage, I think, for businesses, you have to speculate to accumulate. And I was more than happy to say, look, I want to be on this. I want to be a part of this. This is dynamic. It's new. It's different. It's bold. And as it's turned out, it's the most successful fusion of entertainment and retail ever done in the world. Uh, to this date, still, I think they get some 40 million people through that mall annually. Uh, the park does fabulously as as a center court attraction, and I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that I uh, was part of that design and development and operation, and that we set something up that is still to this day, I think, a benchmark for the world on what you can do to merge entertainment and, and uh, retail. Uh, the Grimatian family were a silent partnership in it. And, you know, I think you may know they're associated with the Triple Five organization out of Canada, Edmonton, Canada. So they, they've since taken over that operation. And I think they're now working on the New Jersey uh, development as well. But um, they, they are the ones who I think really had the vision. And uh, they enlisted the support of the Simon organization to, uh, as an American group, to take the idea forward in Minnesota. And it got accepted. And um there we were. And I, I just, again, I, I look back on that as you just have to be willing to say yes and to take calculated risks and offer yourself up for opportunities if you want to grow in this industry. With the development for Knott's Camp Snoopy, I noticed that there's a lot of rides that basically have analogs or variations between it and Knott's Berry Farm. I know uh, Jaguar and I think what they call uh, Pepsi Streak or Orange Streak. I can't remember what the name is right now, uh, but the Zyre Coaster fairly similar rides. There's a Zyre Hexen stance that's there as well. Um, did the Knotts uh, family look at the new park in Minneapolis and say, well, you know, now that we also have this park, this is an opportunity to go to the manufacturers and buy sort of package deals or, or multiple rides that may cut us a little bit of a break on each one? Um, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, Gary, Gary's story back to him real quickly. Gary was very good at that in terms of presenting the fact that he's buying for a whole bunch of parks and he could, he could leverage that buying position, I think, to get better deals and what have you. But no, not, um, most of those rides were already in the Knotts collection. In fact, we'd have to kind of create a separation. If you look at what we opened with in 1992, we opened with, I think, 16 rides in that park. Um, and they basically were derivatives of what we thought were successful rides at Ocean at um, Knott's Berry Farm. And we wanted to make sure that we were bringing in rides that were tried and true, but, but also had a uniqueness to them within that market. 
And so to a certain degree, uh, we did do that. But I think, you know, when you, when you buy, you know, if you go to a zero at that time and we bought the uh, Tivoli coaster, we bought the uh, fireball from them, I think there was, and the wave swinger from them, we bought three attractions from them. Um, when you're buying multiple rides at one time, I think you can certainly leverage some price advantages in that. Um, and I think we certainly did do that. But uh, no, we liked those rides. I think it was more a matter of we thought they were good rides that fit that environment. Uh, we were looking for rides that were quiet, dynamic, um, graceful uh, in terms of how they traversed their space, whether it was turning in a circle or in the case of the Tivoli coaster going all across the heads of everybody. But um we, we put careful consideration to it. We also looked very deeply at the capacities. It was a very different time, too, because we made a lot of mistakes because we thought of it as a standalone gated theme park, and we had to change our own mentality in terms of how we looked at it because it wasn't that. It was a, it was a pay-as-you-go, come-in-for-free, wander-and-buy-by-impulse uh, arrangement. And we had to rethink the modeling we had done. I think if you look today, when we opened in 92, we had specific Knott's Berry Farm product stores. We had craft store, candy store. We had a Knott's Berry Farm boysenberry market. We had a bakery. Uh, we had a food court. We approached it from the perspective that we had a captive audience and that everybody would stay there the whole day. And, and so we, we were using a traditional theme park mentality. And we realized very quickly after opening that you know, we were just an attraction within a bigger attraction and that we had put probably too much emphasis on food and retail because that was already well represented in the mall. And our focus should have been on the differential products, which was the rides and attractions. And so within probably the first year, we realized as we begin to grow this, we're going to probably end up replacing food and retail with attractions because we had the space. We had the opportunity to, to expand within that that rectangle we were in but we could do it in a different way. And so I, I think, you know, we, even if you looked at the original days, we, we got cute, we got esoteric. We, we named the ice cream store Cookies and Cream. And if you stood at the ice cream store and looked up on the third deck of the mall, you could see, you know, Baskin Robbins, Dairy Queen. Uh, you know, we were competing with world-class brands and people knew what that was. They didn't know what Cookies and Cream was. Our, our food court was called Cookout. So it was a themed food facility. It would work just fine in a theme park with a captive audience. But when you stood there and looked up and saw Taco Bell and uh, McDonald's and whatever else was there, you know, immediately the guests would say, well, let's go to the familiar brand. We don't know what this cookout is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we realized very quickly, we, we made some very fundamental mistakes in our thinking and design approach because we assumed we had a captive market. But I, I'm very pleased with the way we modeled it anyway, because we modeled it on an assumption of what our penetration rates would be on the overall mall footfall. And we are almost dead on with that in terms of our estimated penetration for ridership and for uh, usage of the attractions. So, you know, some things we got absolutely right, some things we, we got wrong, but our, our ability to react to it was quite good in terms of what we did next with our capital improvements. And I think uh, when Cedar Fair took over, they continued to do just that. And uh, I think now that the Grimagians have taken over the Triple Five group, they've just continued to build upon that that formula. And I think the Nickelodeon transition from Peanuts was probably a good one in terms of the age groups that they're reaching and the evolution of uh, IP. Before I get into now you went back to Knott's to become the vice president of park operations and entertainment, correct? That's right. Yes. Right. Before we get into that, I do want to ask really quickly, uh, if you go online as, as I did and you hit up LexisNexis and do searches about Knott's, 
uh, in the early 90s, there is very briefly a rumor that comes up that Knott's was looking to develop a theme park in Branson. Is that actually mm -hmm. true? Yes. Yeah, we had done a number of models, actually. Um, there were different parcels of land that were available, and we were looking to take the Knott's, the Knott's brand there. We, we thought that... Um, you know, Silver Dollar City is just a fantastic park, and we loved the everything we loved about that was what made Knott's unique, from the crafts to the handmade things to the way they did their attractions, their commitment to theme. And we thought we could bring something, you know, different but similar uh, to that area because it seemed like those sort of homespun, uh, retrospective, folksy craft and entertainment things were well received. So yeah, we we were looking there. Um, we even looked at Myrtle Beach at one time. So uh, Knott's was looking to expand and grow at one time uh, under Terry Van Gorder's leadership. This is before the company sold to Cedar Fair. And uh, the family was obviously still involved in, in running the board. And I think the family was very eager as well to see how do, how do we take our brand and expand it around the, the U.S. or even abroad. We even looked at one point of managing a property in uh, and actually taking on uh, leadership role of a park in Taiwan outside of Taipei called at that time it was called um, Formosa Wonderworld and uh, I was involved specifically in reviewing that that park operationally and putting a package together with uh, Buzz Price um, and a number of members of the Knotts team to uh, assess whether we should and what we could do and then presenting uh, our plan for what we would do so I even, you know, my first taste of Asia came back in 93, 94 doing that with Knott's. Uh, and we ended up not getting any of those projects, but uh, we, we certainly showed interest and in developed models and programs for all those parks. I guess kind of looking at it in retrospect, uh, given the way things went with Branson USA and Hard Rock Park, uh, probably may have been the wise move to not necessarily build a new build park in those areas. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Going forward with you go back to Knott's and you're there for a couple of years. Um, were you aware prior to the sale to Cedar fair that there was a, an intensive, that they were looking to sell the, the, the company or was it a situation where Cedar fair was looking to get into an acquisition mode and came to them first? No, the, the family I think had reached a point they were in the third generation. Um, and, you know, if you look at any family dynamic uh, of a family-run organization, you know, the first generation put their blood, sweat, and tears into building it, running it. The second generation basically were kind of adopted into it. The third generation usually got different opportunities and different privileges growing up. They weren't necessarily involved in the business, or they might have had partial contact with it. And I think the knots were no different. Um, and I think what happened was they recognized as the fourth generation is beginning to come along, is this a business that uh, we want to be in? Uh, because you know each person married outside of the industry, each person had their own success in different places. Um, and, and I think they, they reached a point where they realized we're going to have to do some estate planning so that the you know, second generation basically has a place they can uh, call their nest egg. The third generation can potentially stay involved, but in an investment level. And the fourth generation and others coming along will be better positioned. And so, no, we knew. Um, in fact, I was involved in the sale of the park. I was one of the participants in presenting it to the um, to the various buyers. Uh, we had secured, you know, like normally we, we secured a group to represent us. 
Uh, we set up a due diligence room. We, we set up a, a, a room in a hotel in Irvine. Uh, and we, we began working once we shortlisted all the prospective buyers, we, we were doing the presentations to them. So I was deeply involved in all that. And, you know, Cedar Fair just happened to be one of the, one of the buyers that came to the table. But we had just about every player in the industry as well as some consortiums that came in to look at the park. And um, Cedar Fair ultimately, I think, offered the best opportunity for the Knott family for both uh, second generation estate planning and third generation shareholding and uh, investment potential. From your perspective, in terms of what you've been able to do professionally, you had uh, the opportunity to go to Six Flags shortly after the sale of Knott's to Cedar Fair. Um, Had you made the decision prior to that sales were becoming finalized and Jack Belfast uh, being positioned for your job, uh, your old job at Knott's Berry Farm to go to Six Flags? Uh, or were you thinking um, that you were looking to stay with Knott's and that maybe you talked with Dick Kinsel and then you, there was a determination that that was not going to happen? How did you end up, basically, how do you end up with Six Flags? Did they poach you or, <laughs> or did you have to go? What <laughs> sort of situation? No, it's a bit of a story, actually. I think um, what what ended up happening was um, <clears throat> Cedar Fair bought us, and and Jack was placed. Jack Valfus was placed at the park, and um, what ended up happening was right after the sale was announced. Um, I, I want to say the sale occurred like in October of, of 1997. Let's say. Um, in, 90, in November of 97, I had gone to the IAPA convention, and interestingly enough, I ran into Kieran Burke there, and we were at uh, one of the receptions, and Kieran and I had attended an IAPA institute in uh, Ithaca, New York back in 93, I think, um, and it was one of those uh, executive development programs IAPA was doing with Cornell University, and so I met Dick Kinzel at that function and I met Kieran. They were both in that same group of uh, students going through the program that time. And um, so I felt like I already had a connection to Dick and to, to Kieran. So it, it was funny that Cedar Fair bought us. I felt like well, I'm connected to Dick. I know Dick and then I've known him over the years. And so I feel comfortable about this. Uh, but when I went to IAPA that year, Kieran had said, how you doing? Is everything okay? And I said, no, everything's fine. I said, I'm, I'm happy. I said, I, I'm assuming from an operational perspective that Cedar Fair will need operators, um, that even if they place somebody to run the company, they'll still need an operator. And that's what I do. And I feel very comfortable in the role. And so Karen had said, well, listen, I, I know that, you know, they have a signature of coming in and replacing people. Um, I, if they end up doing that, you find yourself needing work or looking for work, please, you know, if you, or if you find yourself just not wanting to be in that organization longer, he says, why don't you give me a call? He says, because we've got a lot of things happening in Six Flags and uh, there, there may be an opportunity along the way for you. Uh, and I just kind of put that aside and thought, okay, well, that's very nice, very genuine, very generous of him. Um, and then around early 98, um, the transition was taking place and then you know, Cedar Fair is positioning itself. And I think Jack uh, and I had met and he had called me into the office and, and the only shock was I didn't, I, I knew that things weren't going great. You know, they, they were, they wanted their own approach. They wanted their own philosophies. They wanted their own um, Cedar Fair practices in place. 
And if anything, I was probably a resistance to that because I felt that we had really good practices and programs and things in place that could be best practices in the rest of Cedar Fair. So if anything, I was probably a bit of a resistance for Jack, which is the last thing he needed at that stage of his transition. And so basically we agreed for me to, to leave. And um, the opportunity was uh, when we had set up the sale of the company, there, there were um, basically uh, – bonuses or or packages put together for every executive in the company that if they were released within the first year of the sale there would be a, a package payout to those folks and it was a very well orchestrated well done thing and you know cedar fair accepted that responsibility when they acquired the company and so basically we exercised my exit package which was already constructed ahead of time so every executive had an exit package and it just was a matter whether cedar fair chose to exercise it or not and so Jack and I came to agreement. We had exercised the package. And um, as soon as I got home that day, I called Kieran. And I said, Kieran, I'm available. He said, great. He said, listen, um, we got something going on. Um, let me get back to you. <laughs> so at that point, they had already purchased all the six flag parks. Um, and they were going through their transition there. But what I didn't know was they were in the process of procuring all the European parks, the Wallaby parks, and also the the – they. I don't think they acquired Warner Brothers at that time. It was just the Wallaby Parks. Right. So what happened was um, Kieran had said, let me let me get back to you. We got something going on. I didn't realize the big deal that was going on. So the fact that he even took the time to call me and talk to me was amazing because I realized he's right in the midst of this great big deal. But um, within about uh, 10 minutes, the phone rings again, and it's Gary Story calling me to say, hey, what are you doing? Can you be on a plane tomorrow? <laughs> so, <laughs> Sure, sure. And so he says, why don't you come to Oklahoma City? I'll pick you up at the airport. We'll have lunch together. I'd like to talk to you about what's going on. And so I literally got on a plane the very next morning, flew into Oklahoma City, met Gary. He picked me up at the airport in his car, drove me back to his office. We sat and talked for several hours. We walked around his park. He told me what they were doing, what they were buying, and uh, where they would want me. And he asked when I got back to California if I could go up and take a look at Vallejo, California. They had already taken over the management of uh, at that time, Marine World Africa, USA, he wanted me to look at it and he said he'd like to place me there and he was going to move Dan Alward, who was actually at that park into Europe to take over the European operations. And so uh, I went up, I saw the park, uh, met with Dan. Uh, it was great. Uh, Dan, Dan and I uh, didn't know each other at that time, but got to know each other very well after that and have maintained contact over the years. And uh, Dan basically then took the opportunity in Europe. I then moved up to Northern California and began basically picking up where Dan had left off of a major capital uh, development program in the park and then converting it from Marine World Africa USA to Six Flags Marine World and then converting it. Uh, all, actually, we went from Marine World Africa USA to the new Marine World for about a year, and then we converted to Six Flags Marine World the year after that. And it was a huge conversion, huge transition. We took massive market share away from Santa Clara, and the park really took off. And uh, that was about the same time they acquired the rights to Warner Brothers uh, theme park development. And uh, Gary and Kieran had approached me and asked if I'd be interested in taking on the Spanish role. And again, I didn't hesitate. I just said, absolutely. It's new. It's different. It's international. I'll do it. And uh, so I jumped at it. And, uh, you know, I, I thank Cedar Fair for giving me the opportunity to break away because I would have persevered, you know. Even though I wasn't 100% happy at Knott's, I didn't agree with every direction they were taking. You know, when you're at a place for 21 years, which is how long I had been at Knott's at that time, I was willing to just persevere. 
And I think uh, Jack and Dick gave me the greatest gift they could have ever given me, which was exercising my exit package. And it opened the door for me to go to Six Flags, which then opened the door to go to Spain, which then opened the door to get to Hong Kong. So, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. And uh, these are great opportunities that allowed me to keep growing and developing. Yeah, it seems interesting that you have this evolution where obviously, you know, help out with the Knott's Park in Minnesota. Then you end up essentially with this retheming Six Flagsization of Marine World, which is a marine park. Then you go to an international park uh, with the Warner Brothers Movie World Madrid, which you then operate, which obviously then leads to around 2004, you get the offer, I assume, to, to work for Ocean Park, which... By all accounts at this point, looking at the resume, you seem extremely well qualified for, given that it's an international park that does marine life. Um, yeah. Uh, with, with Ocean Park, was that a, a position also where you opted to leave Six Flags? I know that there was a, a change in terms of the management of Warner Brothers Movie World Madrid away from Six Flags and handing it over to Warner Brothers around 2004. Was that something that you saw that was going to be coming and you decided to go ahead and, and take a job with Ocean Park uh, or at least apply for that? No. Um, the, the way things were working in Spain is we had a, an equity position, Six Flags, and they had a 5% equity position in the park, and they also had the management responsibility. Um, when I had gone, it was kind of on the assumption that it would be a four-year assignment, that I'd go in to design it, to develop it, and then to run it. And then at the end of that four-year period, I would just return back to the States and take on another Six Flags responsibility. And so I had already been talking with Gary, because Kieran, I, I'm sorry, with Kieran, because I think Gary had already stepped down right. from his role at that point in time, because you know Six Flags was going through some pretty tough times about that moment as well um, in terms of uh, stock trading value and questions in the market, what have you. I'm pretty sure Gary had stepped down around that time and then Kieran took on the, the role. So Kieran and I had agreed that I would uh, take a look at the Six Flags Park in San Antonio. And it was exactly parallel to that that I got uh, a reach out from Corn Ferry International that they were looking to fill a position for a, a head of a theme park in Hong Kong. And I knew it wouldn't be Disney. Um, so even though I knew they were building Disney, I knew that they, they wouldn't be looking for anybody. They'd do that internally. So I knew it had to be Ocean Park. And I knew of Ocean Park because we're a small industry. And I knew Daryl Metzger, who would run the park. But on top of that, I also knew my predecessor, Randy Guthrie, because when I was at Marine World, uh, Six Flags Marine World, I had formed a sister park relationship with Ocean Park then. So I already knew of Ocean Park. And I had done that because I wanted to understand how they had merged entertainment, uh, animal attractions, and rides the way they had successfully in Hong Kong. And so I actually, we formed a sister park relationship. We shared animal information and we talked about, you know, everything that they had gone through because I was going through that at, at Marine World. So I already had a knowledge of it, already had a connection to it. And, and it was really, for me, just a, a very simple move because I realized I wanted to stay abroad. I mean, there's a fact or figure out there that shows that you know, 85% of the people who go abroad from the States in expat roles usually stay abroad, even when it's not in the same position they left for. And in my, I guess I became one of that 85% because I saw, I liked working internationally. I, I liked the exposure it was giving my children. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I've, I've done Europe, now how about Asia? And uh, so obviously uh, it worked out well with the interview process. I got selected to come to Hong Kong 
and uh, I've been here ever since. But uh, no, I, um, I, I, other than the fact that Six Flags was struggling at that time and there wasn't really an exit strategy being articulated and I didn't know what was going to happen. Beyond that, no, I, I mean, I was committed to them. I was going to go to San Antonio and run that, but it was just the appeal of staying abroad, the appeal of what was going to be happening at Ocean Park or what could happen there just was too strong of a draw for me. And so I left Six Flags. I, I called Gary, or not Gary, I'm sorry, I called Kieran and just told Kieran um, that uh, I've got an opportunity that's just too good to pass up. And I, I hope you understand it. He was incredibly understanding and supportive and um, made it made it easier than I thought it was going to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kieran had always shown great support and great faith in me. And I, I really appreciated that. And I, I in no ways wanted to let him down, but I also wanted to think about my family and the opportunities moving forward. And so, and he was very supportive of all that. So, the operating Madrid, uh, I know that there were a number of things that that made it quite complex and and perhaps a bit difficult for everyone involved. Uh, local government was the largest shareholder, I believe, but I think forty percent of it was owned by uh, some portion of the city of Madrid or or neighborhoods thereof. Uh, and you had, uh, I believe, a unionized employment base. Is that correct? Well, More different, kind of, actually. Right. Um, there's a bit of a collective bargaining unit, if you will, that was available for the employees. But uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like everything in, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in Spain and in Europe generally, is that there's usually a union representing um, different disciplines. But that, that wasn't problematic in and of itself at all. Um, that, that was just something we had to be aware of, that there, there is a collective uh, bargaining unit that we need to uh, you know, engage with. Um, Madrid was unique. You know, we had uh, Caja Madrid was the uh, main bank in Madrid that had a shareholding in the company. And then there was uh, the community of Madrid also had a major shareholding. It was a group called Arpeggio. Arpeggio was the uh, development arm of the community of Madrid. And uh, then you had the developers in town. Um, you had five different contractors that had ownership. And then uh, Corte Inglés, a major retailer in town, also had an ownership. And so it, it was a matter of basically... Um, you know, working with a diverse group of owners that were all local who were working with an international uh, manager, and uh, we had the management responsibility, so we had the reporting relationship to the board, and we also had the responsibility for running the, the operation. But it was a, um, it, the park, in my opinion, was one of the very best parks in the world. Uh, it was probably in the wrong market. <laughs> so yeah, Madrid wasn't ready for a park that size. And I think that a lot of the work that had been done in the design and the development and the um, modeling of the park was based on traffic that flowed through Barajas Airport. Some 70 million people, I think, moved through that airport annually. And so there was estimates that were done based on movement through the airport, which didn't necessarily translate to people staying the night in Madrid. And, and so I think they had overestimated the attendance potential. The city of Madrid in particular, the community of Madrid, had a huge interest in being the number one park because they're the capital. They didn't want uh, Port Aventura, Terra Medica, or Isla Magica beating them. Uh, they wanted to be the number one park. So they built an absolutely beautiful, well, I did. I, I, I with the team, built an absolutely beautiful park. Uh, world-class and it would have been great in any other market if the market draw and potential was there but the park just didn't achieve the numbers that were anticipated um, I think it was built on the assumption of a 2.6 to 3 million person base and I think we ended up getting near 2 million the first year and now I think they kind of comfortably sit at about a million a year 
Um, but I think it was more the challenge of uh, a number of things, uh, an expectation of the government based on feasibility studies that they went out and purchased that were never quite realized. Uh, it was a manager in Six Flags that I think at that time was unknown to them because they had done a, a beauty contest with a number of different operators from Paramount to Warner Brothers to um, all the other licensed groups, and they selected Warner Brothers to do it. And along comes Six Flags and buys the rights to Warner Brothers. And now we're in the picture, but the government didn't really know who we were. And so we had to introduce ourselves and convince them that we knew what we were doing and that we could uh, take a design and make it better. We could bring it in on budget and we could bring it in on time and we can deliver a product that's even better than what they had thought. And so it was a very engaged effort of uh, convincing uh, partners who didn't know us that we're okay, uh, that we could give them good results and that uh, we would uh, bring them something beyond their expectations. And I think we did all that. We, we brought it in under budget, we brought it in on time, and we delivered a park that I think exceeded expectations. The only thing that I think failed to deliver was the attendance because the market just wasn't strong enough for, for the kind of attendance that park needed. Yeah, and that, that kind of makes sense if, if you know anything about the demographics of, of Spain, and probably a lot of the people who will be listening to this may not necessarily know it. Spain has extremely high unemployment. Um, yeah. It's around 20% on have. average. It's, uh, it's pretty yeah. hideous uh, by Western standards. Um, but, but more of the point is of what I want to ask here, how would you compare working with the Madrid government with Warner Brothers World Madrid versus working with the Hong Kong government and Ocean Park? Uh, very different. Um, you, you know, I think when I had joined the park in Madrid, they were just in the process of converting from peseta to euro, and euro was flooding the Spanish market, and the euro was being used for infrastructure development, roadways, railways, airports. Uh, our park happened to be along a rail system going into a little town called San Martín de la Vega, so it was euro-funded. Um, so there was a great deal of effort from the European Union and from Spanish government to build up their suburbs and build up the uh, peripheral areas to the major cities. And so you had a lot of money being spent. You had a lot of uh, different influences uh, on what was being spent, how it was being spent, reporting relationships. Uh, you had a diverse group of owners who all had interests in the business. And, and what was different about Hong Kong is Hong Kong's a very established, uh, very, um, boy, how would I put it? They've got something here called the ICAC, which is an anti-corruption uh, agency that is incredibly uh, influential and powerful. And so the governance is absolutely at its best. Um, you know, oversight and purview and everything is absolutely at the height of excellence in Hong Kong. And I would say that um, I entered something that had great procedure, protocol, process, governance, uh, whereas in Madrid, I think they were still developing a lot of that. And so they were in the infancy of getting a lot of that kind of in place. And so, you know, we, we had to really kind of bring under Six Flags a level of practice and process and governance that didn't exist previously into the equation. And, and you know, everything from hiring practices to, uh, you know, even where money was spent and who was awarded contracts, we had to remind the Spanish team that we had that we had to be transparent, uh, that you can't award to family or friends or to associates. It has to be tendered. It has to be. And so it was really a case of, you know, going into a market that was emerging 
in into a governance standpoint and a and a control standpoint. Whereas when I arrived in Hong Kong, it was absolutely well established. So two very different kind of markets. And you know, Spain is is a relaxed market in some respects. You know, if you if you're if you're buying a service, that service may only get partially delivered to you. Whereas in Hong Kong, you know, you buy something. It's there immediately, and it and it's there for you exactly as you wanted it, and there's no argument over what you bought or how you put it in place. And so, you know, it was the difference in cultures and difference in timing. I think in terms of how two different communities and societies were evolving, and both very historic, very both very steeped in tradition, uh, but both in different stages of their cycles of evolving their governance and their their management practices. All right. I, I don't want to keep you on forever, so I'm going to try and just get through a couple more quick things here uh, before we close up the podcast. Um, one quick item I have in relation to the Chinese market. Um, recently, there was a death, uh, I think it was in the Chengdu province. I can't remember specifically if that was it, on a sort of a topspin-esque ride. Um, and in the past, there's been some pretty serious ride accidents in mainland China, Uh Eco Adventure Valley, which is an OCT park, had an event that killed six people back in 2010. It, what, are the, what is the perception of ride safety within mainland China? Obviously, it's going to be quite different than what it is in Hong Kong because it's much more established. Uh, but is there a, a sort of a trepidation at all of rides that, that the theme park industry needs to get over? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think you could certainly look back and say that there's uh, maybe a spotty record in the past, but you know, China has been evolving at such a rapid rate. They they have a huge commitment to safety and a huge commitment to safe operations. Um, it's it it's prevalent everywhere in terms of the developers, the operators. Uh, it's becoming more and more and more a part of the daily lexicon when you talk to Chinese operators. I, I think. You know they're probably being somehow um, still tarred with a with a a past brush, if you will, uh, because they're doing very well. I think these days, better and better. Um, I think it's probably it's probably emblematic of anything that's growing at the rate that China is. That if you have that kind of rapid growth and the kind of players entering the market in in you know third, fourth, and fifth tier cities who think they can do the same thing and develop something on their own as opposed to buy from an international manufacturer. I, I think you it, it's going to be, unfortunately, a natural byproduct in that early stage. But I think they quickly got a handle on it. I think the central government has gotten very involved. I think that uh, they have written policies and rules and practices that are you know, very good, taken right from uh, the Western world in terms of uh, what manufacturers recommend and what operators recommend. And you, know, you get a Disney coming into the market, they're extremely good with their operations and, and demand excellence. You, and you've got others that are in the same market now who need to follow their lead. And you've got government agencies that are you know, adopting Disney's approaches and then applying them elsewhere. So you know, Disney's entry in the market is fantastic because it, it sets a standard. And the Universal coming into the market will, will again, reestablish or at least reinforce that standard. And then you got an OCT. You've got you know all these others who realize, hey, we have to be safe. We have to be, we have to be good at what we do. So I, I think you're seeing a community and a country that's just embracing safety these days compared to maybe where it was at one time. And I'm sure you and I could probably go in and visit a whole collection of parks, and we'd find things that are not what they should be. But I, I think what's happening is at the scale at which that country is building 
and at the scale at which the population is represented, I think we're seeing things turn very quickly uh, in a positive way. And so there, there are going to be those exceptions out there. But I, I know you can go around the states and find exceptions. You know, you can go around Europe and find exceptions. But I think you're, you're getting fewer exceptions as time goes on. And I, I'm finding fewer and fewer of those in China these days. We've spoken a lot about the Chinese market. I'd like to do a quick word association with you. Uh, with some of the other markets that exist within the Asian continent. It's obviously a very diverse set of economies that are out there. And we have everything from you know, growing developed economies to potentially declining developed economies and all sorts of, of different uh, nations and various states of economic, uh, basically, development. Um, do you, can we just do that really quickly? Just give me like sure, sure. 15, 20 seconds per... Um, first market, Japan. Oh, mature, uh, established. South Korea. Uh, another mature and established market uh, and looking to grow and build even more parks. Really quickly on Japan, do you see any continuing sort of long-term decline in the theme park industry with the aging demographics in that country? Not necessarily, no. I, I think, um, you know, if anything, they'll, they'll probably end up shifting to more entertainment-based uh, attractions. And But, you know, the, the Japanese market is just, they're great in terms of their loyalty to their parks. Uh, they, they get great attendance. I think there are probably more aquariums per capita in Japan than anywhere else. And they've got some world-class aquariums throughout the country. Um, and, of course, you've got Universal and Disney and some other parks there that are, are quite good um, in terms of what they offer and what they've been doing. Malaysia. Emerging. What about Thailand? Um, I would say emerging as well. Uh, I think you've got a lot of interest, a lot of money that is uh, being focused now in mall and dining and uh, discretionary sort of income experiences. Plus, they're a great tourist destination. But uh, we're hearing about more and more developments there. Indonesia. I, I would say emerging, but probably you know needing to get governance and other things right uh, in the process and uh, ownership and uh, relationships with the industry right. But the, they're 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 going to be there. I mean, there's a great population base. There's great interest, I think, in the government. And um, Indonesians are well traveled around Southeast Asia, so they're they're getting exposure, and I think they want to have some of this in their own home country. Philippines. Philippines is a, a dynamic market. I, I think um, I would call it emerging in many respects because uh, you've got Enchanted Kingdom, which is a wonderful little park owned by the Mamone family and uh, some of their shareholders. They've done a great job keeping it relevant. Uh, you've got casinos moving in, and so you now got uh, Resorts World there. You've got City of Dreams, and uh, you've got a DreamWorks uh, family kind of uh, I'll call it an entertainment center attached to one of the casinos, but uh, I think they need to define themselves. I think they need to find their way. I don't know if their way is in gaming. I think if theme parks is where they want to be, I think it's going to be making uh, appropriate investments and uh, setting up the infrastructure to support those investments. Vietnam. Uh, definitely an emerging market. I think there's great interest in Vietnam at the moment. Um, a, lot, a lot of people looking to see what they can develop there. Uh, the government's making it uh, very attractive, I think, for developers to come in. And 
the markets emerging with uh, spending power and discretionary income and uh, international influence. So I, I think you'll see some things happening there. Do you think that essentially based on the availability of petro dollars in Malaysia and Indonesia, that those are the two sort of southeastern Asian markets that are most likely to uh, expand? I mean, we're going to keep Singapore out of this because they're essentially a fully uh, developed nation yeah. at this stage. <clears throat> well, certainly I think you're going to see because of infusions of money through economic growth, through, uh, you know, um, whether it's minerals or or other um, commodities that, that make those countries economically attractive, as middle class grows, you're going to see people looking to do more things with time and money in those communities. So I think the governments will be looking then for destination resort development. Um, you know, if you, if you go to Bali, for example, in Indonesia, it's a beautiful destination for water-related sports. There's a beautiful water park down there. The beaches themselves are beautiful. It's, you know, it's just paradise. Um, you you take a look at Jakarta. There, there's a lot of opportunity. It's a dynamic, big, booming city, um, and you know, there's a lot of people looking to do developments along coastal areas and create resort destinations. So I, I think there's interest, there's opportunity. It's just a matter of breaking it loose and finding the right combination of developers and investors who and, and operators who want to be a part of it. With the other nations that we essentially left out of that discussion, there's a, a great number of countries in Southeast Asia and uh, in the Pacific Islands. Do you see the Chinese as being sort of an arbiter of influence in terms of being able to bring amusements to those countries that are generally less economically developed or is that just going to be something that they have to do on their own you know i think what the chinese are going to bring them is market <clears throat> they're not going to bring them the equipment necessarily i think the equipment is still going to be european and u.s based for a period of time um i don't think china's entered that manufacturer side of the market yet where they're producing the the type of attractions that are desired by the market uh, but they do bring the market and i think when you see indonesia malaysia singapore philippines japan korea all of them are developing what they're developing for destination Chinese travelers. And so they're the market that everybody wants and they want to put in attractions that would be attractive to them. I think right now the market's going through an interesting transition. Everyone's using the euphemism integrated resort to cover up gaming. Gaming ultimately <laughs> is the objective and uh, the park is a tick box. Uh, if the government says, hey, I want a family thing here, then okay, here, I'll give you a park. Um, but the reality is the money is made in gaming. And I think, you know, you look at markets like Macau, you look at markets like uh, Singapore who have these integrated resorts or well, Singapore has the integrated resort. Macau is now using the terminology. But the reality is a gamer and a theme park goer are two completely different people. And they have different motivations, different interests. They're traveling differently. They don't want to, you know, the gamer doesn't want to leave the floor. They don't want to spend any. And nor does the casino want them off the floor. You know, if they're off the floor, they're not gambling. If they're if they're not at a table, they're not gambling. If they're in a theme park, that that's pennies compared to the dollars they're making in the casino. So, you know, the I think the parks are being offered up as that integrated component of the resort, uh, but the gaming is what's driving it. I think, you know, many are trying to implement the Vegas model where non-gaming is as contributing as gaming, but I think you're you're a generation away easy from that still happening because uh, the interest in gaming is just too great and, and there isn't an interest in bringing the family to a gaming environment, uh, no matter how attractive it looks, because you know, they're just two very different markets that you're going after, two different motivations and two different sort of standards that you're, you're setting.
Last question for you, uh, and we're going to preface this because it's actually going to introduce gaming again. Um, around 2015, there was a substantial drop-off in gaming revenue to Macau. And that same year, you were at IAPA, and you probably presented the only, what I think was meaningful statement of the entire uh, conference. Uh, you, you were discussing your decision to step down from Ocean Park, and one of the things that you brought up as a specific reason as to do so was you were looking at a potential downturn in the Asian market. Um, and I assume this was somewhat specific to China, which, which had been going, undergoing some economic difficulties. Um, and the Macau drop in gambling revenue, which was enormous, I want to say somewhere around half, uh, certainly suggested that. Is that still something that you see coming with the Chinese market is a significant economic downturn? And do you feel that you have uh, best set up Ocean Park to sort of combat what sort of effects may happen on the mainland if there is a downturn there? Yeah, there, there's a few things I think at play here. Um, you know, I think Macau's decline in gaming revenues was the result of government policy in China to limit the people who were allowed to come into Macau and, and the type of money that was coming in, because there was speculation that the money might be coming from city and community coffers that were being was being gambled, whether that's right, true or not, I don't know. Really, but right. Yeah, and so it was a whole crackdown on who the people were that were coming, how they were getting their money, and, and you know, the gambling that was occurring there. And I think it was a demand by China to say, look, we're going to limit the amount of people who come there uh, because we don't want this. You know, and, and you need to, Macau, you need to come up with an integrated concept of more family-based attractions so it's not just gaming. So there was a bit of politics, a bit of other things going on, and China was controlling that valve as far as how people got in, how many could come in. Um, there has been, I think we've we've all seen it, a decline in the I think the uh, GDP of China, and I think it's the lowest growth projection. Even though it's still growth, it's still the lowest growth projection in 20 years of some sort. Um, so it's it's stabilizing, it's finding its balance. I think the the years of double digit growth may be behind us. But, but again, you're talking about a population of 1.3 billion people, and so to even have 4, 5, 6, 7% growth is still pretty significant. It's just, I think they had, they had come to some conclusion some years ago that it requires like 8% growth annually to stay even with the type of population base they had. So anything less than that number would be considered uh, a problem. Um, Hong Kong, as an example, has seen a decline in tourism for a lot of reasons, I think the value of the Hong Kong dollar has been appreciating because we're pegged to the U.S. dollar. The value of the renminbi has been depreciating. And so the spending power of the Chinese is diminishing in Hong Kong. Certainly that would also apply to uh, Macau. And, and so, again, they're going to go where their money spends better, which is why they've been going to Japan and Korea and other places uh, over the last few years because they, the yuan and the yen were declining and uh, they, they got more for their money. So a lot of it's driven by economic factors. But then on top of that, too, I think Hong Kong hurt itself by, you know, a number of things. They were not welcoming to the mainland Chinese. Uh, tourists got killed in a jewelry shop. Uh, there was a riot in Mong Kok. We had the Umbrella Revolution. But we were doing things for uh, various reasons in Hong Kong from democracy and universal suffrage and other things that the Hong Kong people wanted, but there was also a direct rejection of the tourists that were coming in from mainland. And so it created a real negative atmosphere in Hong Kong. 
And I think, unfortunately, what happened was the mainland visitor was saying, well, shoot, I can go somewhere else. My money spends just as well elsewhere. Uh, and then on top of that, you had Hong Kong limiting the number of tourists who could come in based on, you know, they wanted to try and set some capacity targets. They felt that too many were coming in. And I think China as well was handling so many complaints from returning visitors that they were beginning to limit the amount of visitors coming to Hong Kong. So you had a whole bunch of things happening on different fronts that were just contributing to a decline in tourism. And, and I think that all added to declining uh, numbers at Ocean Park and at Disney and certainly at the hotels and all the multiplier affected areas were hit from restaurants to retail to hotels to theme parks, even uh, air traffic you know, was reduced. And so Hong Kong is going through a bit of a repositioning. Um, what I am proud of, and to answer your other part of that question, is that I do believe I left Ocean Park in very good shape. Uh, we had... Uh, about $2.5 billion in cash reserve. We had a 10-year plan outlook on capital improvements. Uh, all those things basically were in place as I left, and so I felt like we had set the company up to weather a downturn in the economy. We could weather probably three to four to five years of, of deficit positioning if need be, and still have the cash reserves to cover the debt service and to cover the company as, as we basically reinvented ourselves as well, because we have the hotels coming along, we had the water park coming along. The rail system opened in December. So the park is actually kind of going through another renaissance now and uh, has some great product on the horizon that will be released and introduced as I think the tourism market starts recovering. So it should put Hong Kong in very good shape and, and certainly Ocean Park in very good shape. All right. Tom Merman, former CEO of Ocean Park in Hong Kong, now still an advisor with them. Uh, and also you have a, a couple of companies uh, to do uh, advisory work in the theme park industry and out, out in Asia. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time.